0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the New Books in Education, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Max Jacobs. I'm a second year doctoral student in education at Rutgers University. Today, I'm interviewing Campbell F. Scribner, author of the book A is for Arson, A History of Vandalism in American Education, published in the Histories of American Education series by Cornell University Press. To get us started, can can you introduce yourself?
1: Sure. Uh, my name is Campbell Scribner. I'm an associate professor at the University of Maryland, uh, where I teach courses in educational history, philosophy, and law. Uh, I'm the author of *The Fight for Local Control*, which is a, a history of school districts, and with Brian Warnick, a book called *Spare the Rod*, which is about the history and philosophy of school punishment. Um, I'm also a product of the public school system, and I'm a father of two kids in the public school system. Excellent. And and I, I heard from your previous
0: MB- NBN. Uh, podcast interview that you're a North Jersey product
1: that's true as, yeah, as that's am I <laughs> 45 minutes west of New York
0: <laughs> so getting to that to that location you begin the book um, with a confession which I'm assuming happened in the North Jersey school bus uh, where you took a bo- uh, you cut the back seat of a school bus with a box cutter Um, Can you expand on how your experience with vandalism influenced kind of the the origin of the book?
1: Yeah, the book didn't actually start with that incident, but that incident opens the book because I was in fifth grade when I smuggled this X-Acto knife onto the school bus and slashed up the back seat. And of course, I got caught. And of course, the principal immediately gave me a detention. And I remember even at the time when I was 10, I had no idea why I did it. It was a total mystery to me. Um, and looking back on it, of course, it's still a total mystery to me. And I think that I'm probably not alone in that experience. Um, and so one of the major themes of the book is sort of vandalism's universality, like everyone does it. I'm, I'm sure the listeners have all the, have their own little peccadilloes and transgressions. Um, and so I want to try to remind readers, one, just how prevalent it is, and then also how at some level, inexplicable it is or mysterious it is. I don't think that there's an easy answer to who vandalizes schools or why, actually. And that's one of the recurring themes uh, through the book.
0: Yeah. And I think in particular, too, while while reading this book, um, you know, the topic of vandalism came up a lot in, in what we saw in media. Um, you know, there it, it seems to be a recurrent kind of theme, both. Uh, within schools, if you work w- within schools, vandalism is most likely going to happen. But also, it seems to be a recurrent theme within the world that we live in. And so I think your book kind of challenges us to think about vandalism in new ways. And I was wondering if you could just comment on what you think the book offers people to that that may not even be practitioners in schools themselves, but just when they see vandalism, ways to to look at it, how the book Changes the way we should look at vandalism.
1: Yeah, I think um, both as a society, but also as academics, I actually don't think we're very good at talking about or thinking about vandalism. So usually, I mean, I, I, for the book, of course, you can imagine I've read about thousands and thousands of cases of vandalism. And in the mo- in modern America, whenever somebody breaks a school window or sets a fire or whatever, the newspaper always interviews the principal. And the principal always says something like, this was senseless, wanton destruction. And the book also sort of opens with this notion of wantonness, uh, which is a fascinating notion because uh, the, the comedian Mitch Hedberg once had a joke that alcoholism is a disease, but it's the only disease you can get yelled at for having. And wantonness is kind of the same thing, where on the one hand, it implies that you're evil or crazy or inexplicable, but at the same time that you're culpable, And usually in the criminal justice system, of course, you can't be culpable unless what you did was premeditated or sort of intentional. But with the accusation of wantonness, we kind of have it both ways, where we don't need to actually explain it or even investigate why someone would spray paint something or set fire to something. But even as we're not investigating it or taking it seriously, we do take it seriously enough to punish them or to redesign the school around this kind of thing. And so it's this weird sort of contradiction when most people talk about wantonness, it 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 performs these weird functions, which often, I think, have very perverse outcomes. At the same time, I think the, the countervailing problem in academia is that whenever principals or the general public say, oh, senseless destruction, academics have this reflexive impulse to say, no, 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 no. It actually makes perfect sense and they respond with whatever their particular interest is, right? This is resistance to racism. This is about class struggle. This is, and you know, fill in the blank. And of course, those are all good explanations. Many incidents of vandalism have exactly to do with that, but not all of them, right? Vandalism is actually this very big, capacious phenomenon. People wreck schools for all kinds of reasons. And so I think one of the sort of ironies that I try to really bring across in the book is, over the last 300 years, kids have actually been very consistent, and adults too, in what they've done to schools, right? They've burned them down, they break things, like that doesn't change at all through the book. But explanations change all the time, which is weird. And, And it's not that we need to be totally pessimistic about explaining anything, but the fact that 50 years ago when a kid wrecked a school, you would say, aha, Freudian neuroses. No one would say that today with a straight face. Today we would talk about various forms of equity, or we talk, you know, bring in critical race theory or what have you, which again, has explanatory value, but will also pass, right? That's 50 years from now, presumably we're going to have some other explanation for these kinds of actions. And at some level, I, I'm just trying to sort of open up space to be unsure about things, open up space for ambiguity and inexplicability. And I realize that for academics, of course, that's not what we do. Like, we're here to explain things and make sense of things. But again, one of the, I think, the big contributions of the book is to think about what it would mean if something was actually inexplicable at some very fundamental level. Mm -hmm. And I, I think the book also,
0: in its trotting to get to kind of looking at the different explanations of why this phenomena uh, or or in in result of this phenomena that can that seems to be as fixated as schools you know right it's almost like it's it's the it's the underbelly um <clears throat> you you draw from from a wide range of of theorists and i think in in a in a blog post that i that i came up across on the book you you mentioned that you you draw from everywhere from romanticism to postmodernism and I was wondering, especially as you know, if we have historians of education that are listening, what, what was your reasoning behind why you delved so deep into a wide array of, of theories? And how do you think those theories helped inform your understanding of, of vandalism?
1: Let's start with the beginning of your question. This book actually started with me setting a little challenge for myself. Uh, usually when we think about education, even if we're critical of the way that schools currently operate, there's still a deep abiding faith in education as sort of a constructive endeavor, right? Kids will grow and mature, schools will help society become better. You know, it's all about adding value of some kind or coming into oneself. And I was just thinking like, what would it look like, again, to write a history of exactly the opposite of that? That is to say, rather than building up, breaking down sort of physically, um, and the challenge I said to myself was I was actually curious what it would look like to write a gothic history of education, a history of education that sort of focused on the irrational or on, on unmitigated evil or something like that. I mean, think about like horror stories, basically, but not to write it in a gimmicky sense, but actually to write it in a real sense. Like I actually look at this sort of undercurrent, as you just said, of resistance and impulsiveness and emotion that I think actually does run through education but runs against the sort of dominant uh, purposes of education and also the dominant interpretations of education. Um, So that's where the book began. And when I I first submitted it to the press, I I had one excellent anonymous reader. I don't know if they're listening, but thank you so much. Uh, This reader gave me a very detailed reader's report. They had all kinds of great suggestions. And at the end, they said something like, this is a very Foucauldian book, like Michel Foucault's sort of post-structuralism. And I thought, yes, 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 kind of. Um, I don't actually see it as a Foucauldian book, but I see Michel Foucault as sort of the end point of a long trend. It actually begins with the romantics uh, along several different lines. So if you think about romanticism, and the book mentions people like Friedrich Schiller, Friedrich Nietzsche, others, they're very interested in selfhood, they're interested in achieving oneself through emotional experience. They're interested in notions of the sublime—that is to say, the inexplicable or the overwhelming. Um, you can trace these themes right up through Foucault, right? Notions of, of again, sort of shaping oneself as a work of art, or of you know, again, resisting dominant or sort of conforming trends in society, radical individualism. Uh, sort of hidden spaces, emotional fullness. The book is not uh, about those things in the sense that I don't offer scholarly discourse on any of those things actually, but it tries to use them to actually structure and inform the history as as I tell it. And so I try to move from one to the next and incorporate some of these writers in the telling and actually even in the construction of the book itself and in the construction of the narrative. And so in that respect, the whole book is sort of a, you might say an aesthetic experiment in how we write history or how we tell about history. And in this case, how we tell about a certain kind of history of destruction.
0: Yeah. And I, I think i think to that point, um, one thing that really stood out to me was this notion of, and I think you end on this notion of uh, the historical sublime. and And I think this gets to kind of what you were just saying. And I was wondering if you could just kind of, elaborate on what you mean by the historical sublime and also how that historical sublime relates to the concept of of vandalism.
1: Yeah, this is something that's really been revived recently with a lot of postmodern theorists. Hayden White is the classic example, but but Frank Ankerschmidt, who's a Dutch historical theorist, is another good example. Postmodernists, of course, have argued that history is not given, right? It's not objective in any sense. Certainly things happened in the past. But each one of those little artifacts or facts in itself is sort of meaningless. And it falls to us, the historians or the modern reader, to make sense of them, to arrange them in a certain pattern or a certain arc, and thereby make a story with a beginning, middle, and an end. And again, they're not against that. They think we need to tell stories to make sense of things, but that we shouldn't confuse that with the way things actually were or any, again, intrinsic meaning in the past. to make this point, again, they're actually drawing from existentialists who in turn are drawing from romantics. And so, again, this is one of those sort of through lines in the book. But when we're looking at school vandalism, one of my challenges in writing the book was thinking about how to maintain that sense of inexplicability or ambiguity in the past, where it, you can't really make sense of some of these things. There, there are times when kids are angry about their spelling test, and so they burn their school down. And then they go burn down three other schools, too. Like, what do we do with that? I mean, it's not not clear that there's a a rational cause and effect there. And so a lot of the book is basically trying to communicate that level of, I'll say, wantonness or excess or just over-the-topness And so you see it throughout the beginning chapters, every now and then there's this little punctuating incident or line and you're like, huh, that's weird, or that's funny, either funny, ha ha, or just funny, uncanny. Towards the end of the book, uh, the last section is basically not history at all. All I do in the final section of the book is provide a bunch of newspaper clippings out of order. They're not in any chronological order. But it's supposed to be this little panorama. Hayden White has a great line about history being a panorama of sin and suffering with no moral. I mean, they don't, they're do not they not supposed to teach us anything at all, except that the past was weird. And the past was inexplicable, again, at some sort of foundational uh, level. And so that's probably the most, you might say, tenuous part of the book or the most experimental part of the book. But the idea, again, is to play with different ways of presenting history and to think about how we can actually present this aspect of irrationality in the past. Um, in doing that part, one of the big sources of inspiration for this book was Michael Lessie's classic book. And also there's a documentary film called the Wisconsin Death Trip, um, where he does the same thing. He basically takes a bunch of newspaper headlines from 1890s Wisconsin and just puts them together. And they're bizarre. There's murder, there's suicide, there's the occult, there's cocaine abuse. There's actually a teacher in the book named Mary Sweeney who goes all around Wisconsin breaking windows. And Lessie does this partly, I think, sort of to play up the kitsch aspect. Like, you know, if you think that the 1890s were about going to ice cream parlors and hitting little hoops down the street, let me tell you, it was actually much rougher. The problem is that in doing that, he actually concludes the book with this little essay, where basically he's like, all of this violence and mayhem, it's attributable to rural poverty and a lack of a modern social safety net. I hate that ending, because I actually think that's exactly wrong. I think he actually introduces this element of sublime irrationality and then kind of backs away from it. I would prefer him cut off the essay and just leave all these weird incidents where they are and let us think, wow. Wisconsin did kind of like lose its mind as the world around us is always losing its mind. I mean, life doesn't really make sense when you're looking for these things. And so that's where I try to end the book is actually not making too much sense of vandalism and trying to convey that element of eeriness or that element of irrationality or impulsiveness and to take it seriously and not to try to explain it away and not to try to sort of domesticate it or tame it but to suggest that there's really a vital historical force to it. Um, If you want to call that nihilistic, you can, or sort of Nietzschean, maybe. But I I think it's important to keep that in there. Um, Most of the book, again, we can talk more about, Like the book makes real historical arguments about power and about politics and whatever. But that doesn't strike me as the interesting part of it. The interesting part, I think, is actually the emotional eruptions and the sort of inexplicable, weird transgressions that one
0: finds in the book. And I think, too,
1: another fascinating
0: part is the juxtaposition of the historical sublime with some what we may term hard history. And I think one part that really stood out to me was the quantification of the destruction of African-American schools in the rural South. And I think what's really striking is just is how you Begin the book with this kind of hard quantification of destruction and yet end with this kind of blur, right? We, we don't know how to make sense of it. But so can you just kind of walk us through first, what was it like to quantify destruction and to kind of p- rift on the ju- juxtaposition of of you actually nu- nu- using numerical value to to capture vandalism? versus kind of what we were just talking about, with the historical sublime.
1: Yeah. The first four chapters of the book are, are the the real history, I'm putting quotes around that, the sort of real history part. Um each one of them actually introduces a new element of vandalism and kind of layers those elements on top of each other. So the first chapter is about the 19th century and basically talks about populism, right? Racism and xenophobia and sort of anti-Catholicism, riots in the streets. The second chapter talks about populism, but then also talks about insurance and maybe we can talk about that in a second. The third chapter is populism, insurance and social science, psychology and sociology. And the fourth chapter talks about how these three things basically turn us in the 1960s and 70s toward the carceral state or more sort of punitive prison like school environments. Um, So again, that's the politics part of the book. That's how we actually talk about power in ways that I think most historians would recognize. Um, When I was writing the book, of course, I knew that all the sublime stuff was probably going to raise eyebrows. It might not be for everybody. And so uh, I wanted to make sure that there was something right at the beginning that people would recognize as valuable, right? That we said a concrete contribution to history, either evidentially or, or sort of methodologically. And so when I was doing the 19th century, uh, you can look throughout any history of Reconstruction. They all mention school burning, right? The Ku Klux Klan or other white supremacists, white redemptionists, going around and burning down freedmen schools. We all know about it. There are Thomas Nast cartoons showing it. That's not new, actually. But when I was researching it, I also noticed that none of them actually said how many. There was this notion that it was very pervasive, and I'm, you know, of course I was sure it was, but where? How? Like? Do we have details about this? And I thought, oh, well, that's that's gonna be super easy. You know, I'm not actually, quanti- uh, I don't do quantitative history. And so I thought, I'll just go count. I mean, what could be easier than counting? And I can make a contribution that way. That'll be super, it'll be simple. Uh, I, w- I was living near DC at the time. And so I could just go down to the National Archives where the Freedmen's Bureau Records are. And I would just go through them. And literally anytime they mentioned a school burning down, I would make a little note and that would be that. It would be easy. On the one hand, the answer that I came up with was 631. That's how many schools I found. And wow, that's a very specific number. But of course, as I started counting, the real story there is that it's actually not clear at all. And I think that even also uh, ties into what I was already saying about ambiguity. The Freedmen's Bureau didn't ask how many schools were getting burned down. And so how they knew was sort of by happenstance. Local agents would write in and mention it in a letter. Uh, Sometimes the the director of the Freedmen's Bureau would note it in a report. Sometimes local newspapers would report on it, but it wouldn't appear in the Freedmen's Bureau records. And so I cast a wide net and I tried to find as many examples as I could, but even then I'm actually very upfront. The number could have been twice that high. We literally have no idea and there's really no way of knowing And So even that first chapter, although, of course, I try to be diligent and I try to be as specific as I can, the last part of that chapter is why we don't know and how we don't know and what that sort of means about, even in the 1860s and 70s, about how power can kind of influence or corrupt our knowledge, in this case of crime, of arson. Um, There's a historian named Elaine Parsons, who has an excellent book about the Ku Klux Klan during the Reconstruction. And she actually wrote it before Donald Trump was elected. But her argument, which I second entirely, is that the Ku Klux Klan became the 19th century version of fake news, where basically, if you were a Southern Democrat and a Northern Republican said, oh, look, the Klan burned down another school, almost reflexively, you would roll your eyes and say, sure, they did. That's fake. You're exaggerating. That doesn't happen. And it was politicized before it could actually be just sort of objectively documented. It was always already sort of enmeshed in this polarized political battle. And for their part, Northern Republicans were actually equally guilty. They also would make sweeping statements about how everyone in the South was burning down schools all the time in ways that also weren't grounded specifically in evidence and were sort of generalized and meant to be used as political fodder. And the result is that, again, we don't, they at the time and we now, didn't actually get a clear vision of what was actually happening on the ground because it was so politicized. And so this is another point that comes up throughout the book. That's not to be nihilistic and shrug and say, well, you know, I guess we'll never know, or it doesn't matter how many were burned down. I mean, obviously, that's not the lesson here. The lesson is we know there was pervasive racial violence in the 1860s all the way up to the present. We know this actually had sort of an effect on schools. A lot of schools got attacked and burned down up through the 1960s, but there's always going to be this lurking element of ambiguity. Um, a lot of times, both in the 1860s and the 1960s, you would have white Southerners, You know, a black school would burn down and they would say something like, well, I'm sure a black teenager did it because they didn't want to go to school. And on the one hand, you should kind of roll your eyes and say, come on, like, they didn't burn down hundreds of schools when we know the KKK is doing this. But on the other hand, in any particular case, I mean, they could be right. Of course, Black teenagers burn down schools, all teenagers burn down schools. And so it's that level of ambiguity where, again, it becomes politicized. People who want to downplay racial violence can always point to, you know, pyromaniacs or, you know, uh, juvenile delinquents. And people who want to play up levels of of sort of racial violence can lean in the other direction. And that's not to say that we need to split the difference. That's not to say that we need to sort of favor one over the other. It's to say that we need to bear in mind the broader context, but also as we do that, not to over determine particular cases, which again, some of them are always going to be a mystery. There's just no way of, of, of getting hard data on these anonymous crimes. And so as a historian, that becomes one way of even approaching, in this case, racial or populist politics at the time, is to see how people are using that ambiguity to pursue their own political ends. And then as a historian, you want to both name that without denying the fact that there was ambiguity, because it's important to sort of remember that, too.
0: Yeah, and akin to the ambiguity, I think, is the, the history of vandalism forces us to reckon with uncertainty, which is, you know, exactly to, to your point. And I think an interesting theme that comes out of out of the book is, is the role of fire insurance, which is precisely to get rid of uncertainty. Um, but it, it it really did shock me reading the book how influential fire insurance was both for the story, but I mean, in general, um, not a topic that I would have thought about or considered prior to reading the book. So if you could just maybe rift on how it is that fire insurance became such a pivotal part of
1: the story, and yeah. Yeah, um, like you, when I started and I I thought, oh, I probably have to write something about insurance, I just rolled my eyes. I'm like, oh, no, this is going to suck. I think, honestly, it's probably the most fascinating part of the book. Um, A lot of historians recently have looked at insurance from a variety of sort of uh, lenses, interpretive lenses, uh, critical historians tend to take a Foucauldian look at it and basically see insurance as a way of imposing norms, right? Healthy lifestyles, right? Or, or certain ways of building buildings or organizing society that are not imposed directly from the government. They're sort of imposed from these quasi-private, quasi-public corporations. But they do have you know far-reaching ramifications for society. Um, more recently, a lot of uh, urban historians, especially looking at the 1960s and 70s, have looked at how insurance basically could function m- much in the same way that redlining did, right? After you have urban riots in, you know, in 68 and 69, uh, a lot of insurance companies basically refused to write policies for areas of the city that they see as, as too high risk, quote unquote, high risk. And this has all kinds of, of sort of implications for for property values and for corporations moving and everything else. All of these studies, though, it's interesting, they all look at private insurance, the kind that homeowners would buy or business owners would buy. They don't look at how insurance plays in with public institutions like schools. And schools are interesting because on the one hand, they don't technically need to buy insurance. That is to say, if you're worried that your school might burn down at some point. Well, you can always just raise taxes to pay for it, or you can put money aside to pay for it. You don't need a private insurance policy, and in some cases, as the book details in in great depth, uh, insurance policies might actually be corrupt. That is to say, they might be too big, or you know, there might be insurance agents trying to sort of siphon money off of you know public accounts. And so, there's not a, a clear role that insurance is even supposed to play in school politics. But starting at the turn of the 20th century and certainly by the 1950s, uh, a lot of uh, school administrative journals and others were really encouraging schools to basically rationalize school management through insurance. So rather than waiting until there's a fire, then trying to come up with the money to fix the school, the hope is we'll, we'll all pool our risk, we'll all sort of pool our resources, and that will help us even out school damage, right? And that will somehow it, it perhaps even encourage us to lessen school damage, if we lower premiums for schools that have fire escapes or schools that have certain kinds of fireproof construction or what have you. I mentioned uh, Tracy Steffes and her, her classic book on progressive era reform. She talks a lot about how reform didn't spread nationally because it was imposed from above, but actually you have all of these sort of grassroots organizations, professional organizations, the NEA and others, uh, using their meetings and journals to sort of improve best practices locally And once enough cities and towns have signed on to a certain curricular reform or a certain certification reform, then the state can sort of try to impose it because it already has a a strong basis. Insurance worked in exactly the same way, where it basically spread informally and then gradually was sort of formalized, but through state requirements or state provision. Even then, though, up through the 1950s and 60s, it was still sort of Fly by night. I mean, like it wasn't required that districts had be insured at all, and many of them did not insure themselves. Um, the argument that I really try to make in the second chapter of the book is that insurance does become determinative, but also not as historians currently assume. Um, urban schools, which actually suffer the most fires, and you would think they, you know, if they have concentrated poverty, they might be the most likely to impose certain kinds of carceral or prison-like conditions, right? barbed wire fences, spotlights, whatever, they do do all those things, but not because of insurance companies. Urban districts are big enough and they have big enough budgets where they can basically insure themselves. They don't need an outside company to do it. It actually becomes suburban districts, which also suffer fires. They also suffer vandalism at incredibly high rates, in fact, higher rates than cities. And they are not big enough to insure themselves. And so it's in those areas that insurance companies basically force them to incorporate all of the same changes. And so we don't usually think of suburban districts being sort of hooked up with a school to prison pipeline or having metal detectors or what have you. And they probably don't to the degree that, that poor urban districts do. But if you go to any suburban school now, partly because of vandalism and also because of school shootings and other things, they also have door locks. They also have certain kinds of like cinder block construction. They also have defensive, you know, like thorny hedges around them. They also limit access points. All of these changes are happening in the 1960s and 70s, and it's all because insurance companies are basically making them do it. Um so insurance becomes this helpful sort of explanatory mechanism basically of a certain kind of social control and a certain kind of rationalization in in school governance
0: yeah, I just found that it's it's something that is out the outside the purview I think of of what we think about when we think about schools and I think vandalism as a topic precisely forces us to reckon with things that we normally wouldn't consider because it's it's like we were saying kind of the the under, undercurrent. And so you you pick up other things that you n- normally won't see um, looking at the history of education. And, you know, another one other part, I mean, just in general, I think what really stood out to me in the book was just the, the use of images to show us what, not just what vandalism looks like, but to show us a continuum of different acts of vandalism and one part that struck me was the use of of books and you kind of do a deep dive into marginalia and and different like kind of really low key it seemed like also high key <laughs> vandalism but particularly with the books i was wondering if you could just explain to us first off how did you how did you find these vandalized books and why why focus on why connect that the books to vandalism.
1: Yeah. So I'm going to take one step back and say, uh, again, the structure of the whole book is basically to proceed from traditional explanatory history, a political history, basically of control and resistance more personal and more emotional experiences of school. And so the second part of the book is these shorter little essays, each one of which is a little more speculative about kids' actual experience of school, like what, what's happening in their head. They're sort of phenomenological, right? They're interested in how kids as embodied living beings, conscious beings, are perceiving their own education or feeling their own education. And with vandalism, when you're saying that like, like these images uh They don't seem to change. It's interesting because throughout the 20th century, a lot of uh, social theorists would basically look at the way that kids wrote on walls or wrote in books or wrote on anything. And they would immediately compare them to cave paintings and they would see this sort of Neolithic or Paleolithic uh, energy emerging. Right. There's some like deeply human impulse scrawl, which, uh, yes or no, I mean, like, you can find that useful or not, but it's just notable that for so long, and even today, people still do see this as something like primeval, there's some like deeply instinctual urge that we have, uh, sort of a Schopenhauerian will, right, that's emerging in vandalism. When it comes to books, uh, the short answer is it's super easy. If you wanna read any 19th century school book, go to Worcester, Massachusetts. The American Antiquarian Society has thousands of them and they are super helpful. Um, And their catalog is so detailed that they can actually tell you which books have marginal inscriptions in them and actually even what they are. And so I went there and I cut off after about 200 or 250, but I could have gone on. Uh, just looking through these old textbooks, these old little uh, you know diaries, these old illustrating books, and kids, of course, doodled and wrote inscriptions all over them in a million different ways. And I thought, um, you know, this isn't vandalism in a certain way, although you can obviously see connections with other kinds of vandalism. But it was a way of seeing how kids were actually sort of becoming, that is to say, how they were interacting with their lessons, not in a totally uh, prescribed way, right? They weren't answering questions on a quiz sheet. They're just writing something in the the margin. And in the process, you get to see kids' individuality, right? Where, as historians of childhood know, kids don't leave a lot of records. You know, kids are not often caught up by the usual ways that we recreate the past, right? They're not signing contracts, they're not getting their pictures taken that often. And even where we do find records of kids, it's usually from an adult's perspective, right? Adults assign them an assignment and then we read what they respond. Vandalism offers us at least one way of looking at kids themselves, sort of outside of, to some degree, outside of the adult gaze. And the chapter on books basically looks at what happens when kids get bored. Or what happens when kids let their imaginations run wild. And so a lot of these uh, marginal doodles and inscriptions, on the one hand, are totally incidental to what's in the book. Kids are drawing hot air balloons, they're drawing trees and horses and whatever. But interestingly, I actually argue that because the 19th century was so big on the German notion of Bildung or or self-culture, self-becoming, That kids really believed in that. And so a lot of times when they're writing in their books, although they're not doing their assignment and they might be bored, they're actually interacting with the book in fascinating ways. And so I mentioned there's one kid who's reading the New England Primer, which is these sort of moralizing lessons about how to be good. And he goes through and basically disagrees with all of them that's not so, I'm not going to do that. It's this very oppositional look where you see a, a human being in the process of becoming specifically by opposing what he's supposed to be doing. Um, and so, I, again, I think that it's not to say that these were totally spontaneous. There is a, a, one of the arguments is that they actually follow their own sort of conventions, these, these doodles. But they're also not imposed. And so they do open a certain kind of space to look at kids from the inside to look at kids' imaginations, to look at kids' own sort of personalities. And
0: and, and it's not just books that you look at. You also look at desks, you look at walls, you look at windows. And can you just kind of reflect for us like what what do these physical objects offer us as a way of understanding vandalism? Both in its historical sense, but also in its in its phenomenological sense, this idea of kind of refusing. Right? and how that becomes a
1: way of being. Yeah, from the historical sense, I mean, readers should remember that schools have not always looked like they currently look. Like desks have not always been in schools. Back in the one room school houses of the 19th century, kids would sit on benches, but they wouldn't have desks. And so these things appear at certain times in our history and for certain reasons, right? There, there are certain notions of how kids should learn, how they should be arranged in the classroom, what these things are doing. Windows, for instance, have always been seen as like a a means of health, right? That kids need to get light and air. And that also by getting light in the classroom, it's going to basically make kids the romantics, right? The kids are going to be happier and kinder and more cooperative. Think about any kindergarten you've ever been to. It's colorful and bright. And there's some notion that that's going to like improve kids' souls, basically. When the windows come in and the kids smash them, which they do with great regularity, that that raises a new kind of question. Like, what if the kid's soul isn't as good as we think it is? Um, What does that mean? And so, yeah, I think each one of these chapters focuses on a particular artifact, but then also tries to, again, look at kids' emotions and see what were they doing with these artifacts. It's not usually what they were supposed to be doing but they made sense of them in their own ways. And so the desks, uh, when kids carve their initials in desks, that essay talks about nostalgia and basically how on the one hand, even today, of course, we have certain kinds of very obnoxious conservative voices who act like there were good old days. And they often trot out school desks as an artifact of the good old days when kids were innocent and we didn't have drugs in schools and everything was better. And of course, I point out that's nonsense, right? There were no good old days. This is a stupid argument to make. But perhaps uh, uniquely, I'm not actually against nostalgia. And so that essay tries to look at what kids themselves were making of these initials in their desks. And I argue they themselves were being nostalgic. They were actually very emotionally invested and almost uh, sentimental in their connection to school. It means something that you belong in that school and you carve your initials in it. Um, Likewise, uh, with The Bathroom Walls, which is the third essay, You know, kids read all kinds of smutty, inappropriate stuff in the bathroom stalls. I mean, fine. I try to think a little bit about what they actually learn from that and how uh, privacy basically is important in education. Because if you think about it, the bathroom stall is about the only place left in school where kids can actually be by themselves. And while they're in there, they are exposed again to dirty limericks or to inappropriate drawings or whatever it is what do they do with that how do those things actually educate them or how do they educate themselves through them um so again it's looking at particular affordances or particular artifacts of schools but trying to look at them through a kid's eyes which i think it's not that no historian has done that before but it's not the usual way i think that that we approach the history of education um and it's not only of historical relevance obviously these things are still true today and i think it might help us understand kids experience today to just pause for a moment and think about what they make for how they come into being in particular spaces and schools. Yeah, and I
0: couldn't help but think about when I was reading these parts, like how much longer do you think this will actually happen as we increase surveillance, right? It's. It almost seems as if these acts themselves, while there is a continuum within your book, I wonder if there's going to be a continuum in the future and, and what that kind of will look like.
1: Um, yeah, so it's interesting you put it. I didn't think you were going to take that last turn you just made. One thing that I actually wonder about is as schools become in some ways less physical environments through online schooling or whatever, like, it might be now that kids bully each other or they sort of deface someone's Facebook page or something digitally you know, and not physically. Um, the physicality part of it, as long as kids are in schools, they are going to deface things and they are going to wreck things. I mean, that's I, I take that as a given. That's one of the sort of underlying themes mm-hmm. of the book. Mm-hmm. When we think about surveillance, bathrooms actually are really helpful with this because it's not a new thing, actually. Going all the way back to the 1800s, there was always a fear and a knowledge that when kids go into the outhouse or when they go into the bathroom, they have privacy and that's dangerous. And so even Michel Foucault points out that, uh, I think it was at the Ecole Normale in, in Paris, Uh, they put uh, doors on the bathroom stalls when kids have to go in and use the toilet. But the reason that those doors don't go all the way down to the floor, even now, of course, you can look under and see people's feet. The idea was that the kids needed privacy to do their business, but you didn't want them going in there and masturbating. And so you needed to be able to have some kind of surveillance of them. Schools throughout American history have always struggled with vandalism in the bathroom. And so occasionally, schools will always station an adult in the bathroom. Sometimes they put video cameras in the bathroom. Sometimes they've even taken the doors off of the stalls, more like in a prison. Every time they do this, they've had to retreat. Parents throw a fit as they should. Kids throw a fit as they should. They deserve some degree of privacy. But then, of course, they will also wreck the bathroom, which they do. <laughs> um, and so, there's just no there's no answer to it. I mean, as long as you want kids to have some privacy, you're going to need to accept some degree of wrongdoing, basically. And I would say I, we should be willing to accept that. I mean, I don't I don't think we should we should clamp down on privacy to the degree of dehumanizing kids. Um, I'm willing to tolerate a few a few dirty doodles in the bathroom. Yeah, I think
0: it's going to force us to come to that reckoning. Um, as far as how far can we actually go to control what happens in these private spaces. Um, And, you know, I think it, what's interesting too that stood out to me as far as the, the use of the three parts of the book and you, you do kind of, you tell history in three different ways. And you mentioned earlier, earlier in our conversation about this notion of shards, but I, I, I'm interested to know, it seems like you had inspiration from, past projects that used a similar vantage point, but what do you think the form of telling a history in kind of this irrational shards way, what does that offer the reader and how does that help the reader or or not understand what happened in the past?
1: Again, I'm not sure if, if listeners or readers are gonna agree with what I'm about to say, but I'll just say it anyway. <laughs> we live in a moment right now in education where we have, I think, illusions of control, where everything is quantified or everything is theorized, right? We count, we measure, we graph, we know what students' test scores are, we know what they're reading. And I think implicit in that is some notion that through enough information policy or teaching practice can bend students to our will. We can routinize their education. We can, they're like little machines. And if we root, if we make the inputs regular, we can make the outputs what we want. Again, insofar as this is sort of a romantic book, I reject all of that just out of hand. I think that students as human beings, I mean, Kant has the famous quip that, that out of the crooked timber of humanity, no straight thing was ever made. I think that's right. I think that students, insofar as they're people are not able to be rationalized or routinized in any particular way, and I don't think education should try to do that. And so I think it's really important to preserve an element of unpredictability, simply to remember that there are parts of schooling that are always going to remain outside of our hands and sort of unable to be fully explained or understood. There's a philosopher of education named Kevin Gary at Valparaiso, who I I really admire his work. He had an article recently where he uses uh, Jean-Luc Marion about what he calls this notion of of sort of um, saturated phenomenon, which is to say particular objects or ideas that cannot be put in a box, that have an element of sort of eternity to them or infinitude to them. And his point is that right now, as we try to sort of have academic standards, you will teach this on this day in this way, and the kids will get these skills. If we apply those to Hamlet, or we apply them to opera, or we apply them to literally anything, breakdancing, whatever, they intrinsically, they reduce it, right? They narrow it in ways that like, yes, you can now have certain outputs, but you don't really understand Hamlet, Hamlet is this eternal thing. You can always go back to it and see it in new ways. The whole point of this book, I think, is to look at vandalism also as a saturated phenomenon. This thing that is big enough and capacious enough and inexplicable enough, we can't, in the end, really make sense of it. And in that sense, I think it's supposed to stand in for a certain element of education generally that I don't think we can make sense of. In so far as it's about individual souls or individual human beings sort of coming into themselves i don't think that we can explain it or theorize it in such a way that it actually closes it off i think it it opens up inevitably to some, some something deeper and something inexplicable yeah getting a little bit deeper into that how how do you see the book
0: um within the field of history of education and you're speaking i think a little bit to also the the more general uh Field of educational research, you know. Do you see this as a book as challenging existing norms, which I think the idea that you were just mentioning kind of does very much challenge the the zeitgeist of educational research. But how do you see the book fitting within the larger, the subfield and the, and the larger field?
1: I I don't know. Uh, time will tell. I will say, like normatively, if I can just say what I would hope that it would do. Um. Again, I don't think the book actually foregrounds theory, right? It doesn't discuss theory. It tries to use theory and how it sets itself up and sort of its vibes, I think is what the kids are saying these days. It's sort of like I (laughs) I would love to see more work in the history of education and history generally that had a certain kind of soul to it. That is to say that it had a certain kind of aesthetics to it. Uh, I don't care what those are, honestly. I mean, I know a lot of people are really attracted to various forms of critical theory. Um, Andrew Hartman's book about the culture wars. I mean, Hartman's a Marxist, and the, the conclusion of that book is like the most Marxist thing you'll ever read. I find that delightful. And I just, I really do wish that whether they're sort of experimental structurally or not, I really appreciate reading books that strike me as having a grounded vantage point. Whatever that might be, they might be Foucauldian, they might be sort of more quantitative, whatever it is. But rather than just seeing history as this sort of exercise in which we present facts as sort of objectively and neutrally as possible, and we draw conclusions and there's a beginning, middle and end, I would love to see more work that strikes me as, as deeply grounded in other fields or deeply grounded in other ways of being in the world, whether they foregrounded or not, but to actually be able to read something and say, wow, um, you think about Louis Manon's book, The Metaphysical Club, which is a history of pragmatism in America, but is also actually a pragmatist history of pragmatism. Again, I just, I love that. I, I, I think that playing with the aesthetics of history, how we craft narrative and how we convey our ideas, whether visually or, or sort of through words or through sources, I wish historians would pay more attention to it and would be a little more playful with it, for want of a better word there is there is though i think there there's a a
0: consequence of that approach i think though that it's a fine line right where there's kind of a confessional aspect to it right and i think walking that line of not being too mired into the theory where you feel as if you need to confess to it and and only operate within that circle versus i think what your book offers is a way to I think kind of like Louis use pragmatic pragmatically use theory to make sense of data that's in the past, and I, and I think that's something that your book does offer is a is a way of doing that. You know, a, a structure of doing that.
1: Um, this book uses a lot of Nietzsche, and I'm teaching Nietzsche next semester, so I've been reading a lot recently. Uh, Nietzsche's vision of pluralism, right the idea that we should actually want people who disagree with us because that makes us better we shouldn't try to get everyone to be the same we should we should celebrate difference I don't I don't know how strongly I hear that perspective I guess in the higher ed generally these days or even in any particular field and so again, I've seen a lot of history recently which strikes me, some of it, not all of it, but some of it strikes me somewhat ideological, but also as you're saying, because it's sort of personal, right? I have a great investment in this particular cause, labor or anti-racism or you know feminism or whatever it is. Because of that, I'm trying to either convince people of my one position or to sort of like rally people who already agree with my position. That's not to say that we need to then, you know, not try to, of course, we're trying to convince people, that's the whole point of writing a book. But again, if I'm reading a Marxist book, I mean, I'm not a Marxist. I think I understand Marxism and I, I appreciate understanding more about it and learning from Marxist scholars. But I don't I, I don't go in assuming that they're going to convert me, right? And if I was a Marxist, I wouldn't actually go in trying to convert other people either. And so in that respect. I don't, maybe this sounds ironic or like like a dilettante or something, but I I do really value pluralism for its own sake. And so I would hope that when people are, are coming at education from any particular angle, that they would find themselves enriched simply by people being different and people having a different set of values or a different set of perspectives than their own. And that, that in itself, I think, is one of our big, just at a personal level, I think that's one of the big purposes of higher education. Um... People don't have to agree with that. Of course, I would hate to, you know, impose that view on anyone. Uh, But I I do see value in it. And I do uh, honestly take delight when I read books that strike me as really having a unique grounding or a unique perspective. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that I ended up leaving the book
0: with was thinking about if we take vandalism seriously... And you kind of give us three ways of doing that. You call it anti-educational, self-creating, anti-historical phenomena. These are, you know, three kind of main ideas and takeaways that that we get as a result of reading the three parts. What does that mean for, for people in education? And that can be both from a from a researcher level, but, but I think also from a practitioner level, both as a school leader, as a teacher, or as a student. This is a lot. But what, what does it mean, really, to take vandalism seriously? And how will that guide? Action and research.
1: I presented part of this book at a, the ARA, the big education conference, several years ago, uh, and there was a, a principal in the audience who raised his hand and basically said, "My school right now is wrestling with this this plague of vandalism. Kids are wrecking everything. Tell me what to do." And I'm just like, "Oh no! Like, I don't know. I'm a historian. Like, it's your job, man." <laughs> um, I don't I don't offer pat answers and of course again the whole point I think of the book is that kids have wrecked schools a lot for a long time I don't I don't think we are going to solve the problem and in some respects I it, that might be almost like a small C kind of conservative answer which is that like this utopian notion that we'll just flick some switch and vandalism will go away is really misguided. And we should be more modest basically in our responses to it or our expectations of any particular response. I think that actually is one of the takeaways of the book. I would also point out, I mean, going back to me slashing up my school bus, kids are impulsive, even good kids, I would like to think that I was a good kid, Uh, even good kids do this, right? And so that's not to say that we shouldn't punish them. I think actually punishment is super important if you're trying to convey moral seriousness. If If a kid does something wrong, obviously you should punish them. But even punishment I think needs to be tempered with some notion of restitution, some notion of growth, looking at the kid's own interests and the community's interests. And so that's again, not gonna solve the problem right away. But if one responds recently to vandalism has been lock them up, you know, put the kid in prison, arrest him and make the school harder and tougher. That doesn't strike me as actually helpful to anyone. Um, I think we do need to try to make schools welcoming spaces, not because that's going to do away with vandalism. It won't. But I think just intrinsically, for other reasons, schools need to be welcoming spaces. I think kids should be punished, but they should be punished moderately so that they can grow and make things right. Not all of them will, some kids are gonna be jerks, I'm sorry, but I don't think you can approach educational policy by assuming the worst of children. I mean, that's just, call me naive, but that doesn't strike me as especially helpful. And so by taking vandalism seriously, I think I'm trying to say on the one hand, it can be political and if it is, we should look at it politically. Why are kids or adults so upset that they're vandalizing schools and what could we do to make them less upset? It might be moral. There are times when kids just do things that are wrong and they need to learn that it's wrong. Okay, let's punish them to help them learn that. There are also, again, times when I think it's not totally clear what it is. Kids themselves don't know why they're doing it. it, it it's some prank or it's some sort of you know exuberance. At some point, I think adults need to just shrug and say, huh, kids will be kids. And yeah, you've got to pay for it. I'm sorry. It can be very expensive for kids to be kids. But in the end, I think that overreacting to it or over-determining what caused it, it it's a fool's errand. It's not actually going to fix thing.
0: So <laughs> maybe taking vandalism seriously requires a, kind of an acceptance of its...
1: Yes, exactly.
0: That's fascinating. Um, all right. Well, as we're kind of coming towards the end here, I was wondering um, if you could tell us if there's any even though you just completed this all beautiful book, <laughs> the perennial question, um, are there any other projects that you're currently work on that would you, you would like to share?
1: Sure. Um, on the existentialism sort of vibe, uh, I just started a biography of a philosopher named Phil Phoenix, uh, who taught at Teachers College Columbia back in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, Phoenix was very interested in religion and science um, and was sort of interested in how various ways of knowing and disciplinary lessons could lead us to higher truths, to transcendence, to some notion of God or the spiritual. Um, and so I'm working on that biography right now. Uh, Phoenix actually started life as a, a child prodigy. And so the first chapter is all about him basically teaching himself theoretical physics as a 12-year-old. Uh, Albert Einstein makes an appearance, like a real appearance. It's, it's just fascinating stuff. And I'm hoping it's going to both teach us something about the mid-20th century, you know, some ways of thinking that we don't often hear about in the 1950s and 60s, but also, and you'll hear some of me in this, um, it'll help present-day teachers think about the ultimate purposes of education. Um, A lot of us complain that schools are too sort of utilitarian. We focus too much on test scores or skills or what have you. But even there, I think we take certain presumptions about what justice in schools would mean or what learning in schools would mean that I think we actually don't really talk about. We actually don't lay out what we think goodness is or what we think human beings are, um, especially in public schools, maybe more so in Catholic schools or Lutheran schools or something. But the book's going to try to meditate on that a little bit about the ultimate purposes of schooling.
0: Hmm. That sounds fascinating. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I'm really, really thankful for you, Ken, for for writing this book. I think it provides um, researchers in general a, a new way of looking at a, a phenomena that I think you know is internally fascinating to to especially people who have engaged in vandalism themselves. you, <laughs> but you also... don't need to confess if you don't <laughs> want to. <laughs> the North Jersey thing; it, it happens. But no, and <laughs> but also just giving some some new ways of of thinking about. The past and and ways of approaching um as a researcher the way we understand what actually happened and what that ultimately means. And I think this book um really forces forces the reader to to reconsider a lot of the things that we kind of just hold as 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 fact, right? And and makes us question. So um thank you very much for being with us today and, and I wish you best of luck with the rest of the semester.
1: Thanks so much for having me.